Welcome to Schooled by Mr. Baskin. I have been working with young people for 27 years plus now, and I've loved it, all of it, even the tough times. I am using this time to reconnect with older students or to just kind of express what's on my mind. And now, not just about what I've done in the classroom, but what I've done on the football field. Hopefully it helps me kind of get thoughts out and also helps you kind of appreciate all the work that goes into being a teacher and a coach. All right. Welcome to Schooled by Mr. Bascom, starring Mr. Bascom, Coach Bascom, or just plain old Kurt, like I like to go most of the day. Anyhow, um, today's lesson is kind of a special one for me. I have always tried to teach in a way that allows me to incorporate a lot of different techniques and a lot of different materials. And this lesson is, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like an origins lesson in that it combines a lot of the things that I love and kind of helped establish my teaching style. And some of those things that I love, obviously, are, are reading and history and storytelling and metal music, specifically Metallica music. So this lesson involves me using the book Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo and the song One by Metallica on Injustice for All. And, well, I'm going to tell you a little story. Want to hear it? Here we go. Okay. Usually when I teach this lesson, I kind of start off with a quote, and the quote is uh, from the book Johnny Got His Gun, and it says, what's so noble about being dead? And pretty profound question to ask, and Dalton Trumbo was very courageous and was willing to ask that question when he wrote this book back in 1939. It wasn't very popular amongst the authorities, the conformists, because it, it kind of questioned, you know, death with dignity. It sort of questioned, you know, fighting for your country and dying for your country is an honor. And he was asking the question, what's so noble about being dead? But I didn't know about that quote for many, many years because my story begins when I'm 11 years old. When I was growing up, my family, uh, we never went on vacation. We didn't really have a whole lot of money. It was something I didn't realize until we got, I got quite a bit older. But when you're, when you're young and you don't go anyplace, you just don't think about it because you're busy doing the things that are right in front of you. But at one point when I was 11 years old, my dad came home from work one, one day and told me and my brother and sister and my mom that pack up, we're going to Atlantic City. So, wow, I, that was a foreign idea to me. I'd never been there. I didn't know anything about it. And... But we packed up the car, and this was right before pretty much my parents had split up permanently. So it was an opportunity for us to be together. It's probably my last memory of me and my whole family together. And anyhow, so we get in my dad's 1980 Chevette, all five of us, and we drive the two and a half hours or so down to Atlantic City. And we're staying in this small, tiny hotel. And Atlantic City itself, it's a nice little beach town in South Jersey. It's got a boardwalk, a lot of stores, and it's known for its casinos, although the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, it's kind of lost a lot of its luster. But when we went there back in, I think it was either 81 or 82. I think it might have been 81, actually. So I was 10. We, we get there, we settle in, and the next morning, my mom decides that she's going to go shopping, and she's taking my brother and sister with her. I'm excited because it gets to be me and my dad. And me and my dad, we have 
sometimes very different ways of looking at things. But growing up, my dad, to me, was the heavyweight champion of the world when it came to telling a story. And uh, several things about my father. He, um, he had no filter. He spoke to us and told my brother and sister and I things that you shouldn't be telling to children. You know, primarily war, war stories about Vietnam and his experiences growing up, which involved a lot of fighting and a lot of drinking and a lot of crazy behavior. But he never really thought to say, hey, maybe I shouldn't tell this to a 10-year-old. It just never struck him that way. Another thing about him when he does tell a story is he's great at kind of building up the, the interesting parts, but he is terrible when it comes to specific details. He never remembers the name of an actor, the name of a movie. He'll be like, oh, you know, that movie with that guy, you know, we saw at that time. And he just doesn't remember things. And that, that plays into this. Anyhow. Family goes shopping, and it's me and my dad. I'm going to walk down the boardwalk. I've never been there, so I'm just kind of fascinated with what we're doing. And my dad says, let me tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about this, this thing that I remember. I said, okay, great. He goes, well, there was this movie that came out a long time ago. And apparently, he didn't know about the book yet, but we'll get to that. Anyway, he says, there was this movie I saw a long time ago. I don't remember the name of it, but it was about this guy that was going to go fight in World War I. And I'm 10 years old. I go, well, what's World War I? He goes, oh, there's this terrible war that was fought about 100 years ago, and it was fought in Europe mostly. I go, okay. He goes, well, there was this guy, and his name was, was Joe. And Joe was going to go fight in Europe. And he's from America, so he had a girlfriend, but he's going to go off to Europe, and he's going to fight for the Allied powers against Germany and the, the rest of the, the bad guys in this war. Okay. And once he's stationed there, he's in France, and he's on the Western Front. Like, what's that? He goes, well, Western Front, that's kind of where a lot of the battles were taking place in this war, on the, on the Western side of Europe. Okay, got it. And while he's there, he goes into his trench, and he, he's waiting to fight. And a trench, he tells me, is kind of this giant deep hole that they would fight from, where really it was very deep, and maybe at most the top of their head would stick out, and they would fight from there with the idea of staying safe. Anyhow, while he's in this trench one night, a mortar round lands in his hole, and it explodes. I go, oh my gosh. He goes, yeah, it explodes, and it, it rips apart his arms and his legs and, and shatters his eardrums, and he goes blind from the explosion, and, and his vocal cords are destroyed, and his eardrums, and, and I go, oh my God, he died? And he goes, no. And I go, wait, what? Remember, I'm, I'm 10 years old. I, I don't even know if I should be hearing this at that time, but yeah, he didn't die. Oh my gosh. No, he didn't die, but they, they found his remains and, you know, they carried him back to the medic tent and soon back to a hospital and soon back to America. And when he comes to, he's trying to figure out what has happened to him. Now, at this point in the lesson, I usually read an excerpt of Johnny's Got His Gun. So that's what I'm going to do now. They were working on him. It took him a little while to understand this because he couldn't hear them. Then he remembered he was deaf. It was funny to lie there and have people in the room who were touching you, watching you, doctoring you, and yet not within hearing distance. The bandages were still all over his head, so he couldn't see them either. He only knew that way out there in the darkness, beyond the reach of his ears, people were working over him and trying to help him. They were taking part of his bandages off. He could feel the coolness, the sudden drying of sweat on his left side. They were working on his arm. He felt the pinch of a sharp little instrument grabbing something and getting a bit of his skin with each grab. He didn't jump. 
He simply lay there because he had to save his strength. He tried to figure out why they were pinching him. After each pinch, there was a little pull in the flesh of his upper arm, and an unpleasant point of heat like friction. The pulling kept on in short little jerks, with his skin getting hot each time. It hurt. He wished they'd stop. It itched. He wished they'd scratch him. He he froze all over, stiff and rigid like a dead cat. There was something wrong about this prickling and pulling and friction heat. He could feel the things they were doing to his arm, and yet he couldn't rightly feel his arm at all. It was like he felt inside his arm. It was like he felt through the end of his arm. The nearest thing he could think of to the end of his arm was the heel of his hand. But the heel of his hand, the end of his arm, was as high, high, high as his shoulder. Oh, Jesus Christ. They'd cut his left arm off. So as Joe lays in his bed, he's realizing that they are essentially cutting apart the parts of him that are no longer working. And he's brought to this hospital in America, and he's armless and legless and cannot speak or see or or hear. And yet, technically, he's alive. He has a heartbeat, and he's thinking, we know this, but the doctors and staff at this hospital don't seem to know that. But they take a Hippocratic oath, and they have to keep him alive. So they put him in some deep, dark chamber in the back of this hospital, and he's essentially unseen by everyone except for the occasional doctor and the nurse who comes in to change his bandages and things like that. And we hear his thinking, you know, throughout the story. And he's slowly going insane, and he honestly doesn't know if he's awake and remembering things or if he's asleep and dreaming. He has no concept of time, of anything really, and... Now, he once had had a girlfriend before he left for the war, but she's long gone and out of the story. So he's by himself and, you know, slowly going mad and wishing that this could stop in some way. All he can do really is kind of reminisce and remember. And he remembers when he was young that his father would, you know, tell him about war and tell him about life. And at one point, his father had taught him Morse code. While he's laying in this bed, and we have no concept of how much time has passed. It's certainly many months, perhaps years even. He starts to remember Morse code, and he decides, I'm going to tell the people that see me via Morse code what's wrong with me, you know, to help me. I'm going to ask them to help me. And he uses Morse code on his pillow, moving his head, which is the only thing he has that can move. So he starts tapping in Morse code on his pillow again and again and again. And time passes. And generally when doctors and nurses come in, they think it's just an involuntary muscle spasm because he's brain dead. But here's the thing. At some point, a nurse who regularly checks in on him notices that there's a pattern to this, that this isn't just a random movement like a spasm usually would be. There seems to be a pattern to this. And if there's a pattern, well, then that means his brain is working, which means he's not brain dead which means, oh my gosh, what's going on with this person? And eventually, she keeps seeing this, so she gets a doctor. And the doctor comes in, and after observing him for a bit, he realizes, oh my gosh, he's doing Morse code. He's tapping Morse code with his head on his pillow. Ten years old, people, just letting you, reminding you of that, that I'm hearing all of this as we're walking up and down the boardwalk. Anyhow, ten 
you know, they realize he's doing Morse code. Soon enough, they get some officers to come in and try to properly transcribe what he's doing, what ha- what he's tapping. And soon enough, they realize, yes, he's saying something. So they start tapping on his chest. Hello, can we help you? Because he'd been tapping SOS, help me. And so now they start tapping on his chest, on his torso. You know, hello, we, we see you, we see you. And in the story, he's ecstatic. Like, oh my God, they hear me. And for the first time in the whole story, he's happy. He can't believe that someone hears me. There's someone out there. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And they tapped him. What, what can we do for you? How can we help you? And he taps back on his pillow. Kill me. Please kill me again and again and again. Kill me. The doctors and the officers in, the, in, in his room, they kind of look at each other in shock. They don't really know what to do. And they decide, well, we can't do that. We can't kill him because, well, we've taken a Hippocratic oath. And with that, we hear Joe screaming, what's going on? They, they were communicating with me. And now they're not. Why won't they talk back to me? Now I feel alone again. Oh, my God, what, what, what's, what's happening? What's happening? And in reality, they're, they're putting him into another darker chamber of this hospital. And as the story ends... My family shows back up, my mom, my brother, and my sister. And I go, wait, Dad, no, wait. What, so what happens? What happens to Joe? Did he die? Did he? Did, so what happened? Oh, I'll tell you another time, guy. That time never comes, you know. And um, anyone who knows a little bit about me and my, my family knows that, you know, well, soon enough my family had some real bad times go on and my parents split up and we never really went on vacation again, at least not like that. And years pass. And that story haunts me for years. You know, I, I would actually dream about it from time to time. And again, like I said, my dad wasn't really good with, with details. So I didn't know the name of the story or the movie or any of the actors, nothing. I just knew this crazy story. And like I said, it would sneak up on me at night and I would think about it, but I didn't really remember it. And as year, the years passed, I just kind of let go of the story. I just didn't really think about it. It was just something that would pop up, but I couldn't really even remember much about the story, except that my dad had told me some crazy story. Years go by. We go to 1988 now, and I'm in high school. I'm a senior, and I'm a full-fledged metalhead. I wear black all the time. I have long hair, and if you see me, there's a good chance I'm listening to music, and my favorite band of all time is Metallica. And that year... Metallica is putting out a new album called Injustice for All. I can't wait. My best friend is Tom, still is, and he has tickets for uh, the Monsters of Rock concert, which is Van Halen, which is now a a second place to to Metallica, but at the time my favorite group, and Metallica is playing there, and he has tickets, and he's like, we should go. You should come. And, but it was the day of high school graduation, so I can't go. It was a mistake. I should have gone. I should have. High school graduation was boring, and I didn't have a lot of friends in high school and whatever. But anyway, here's the thing. I, I love Metallica, and they have a new album coming out that, that year called Injustice for All. And albums, even today, they come out on Tuesdays. New albums come out on Tuesdays. And at that point, I had a car. I was 17 years old, and I had this green 1980 Honda Accord that I bought for 200 bucks at an order at an auction. It was a piece of crap car, but I loved it because it allowed tape deck and I could get myself around. So I drive to the Nanuet Mall. I'm living in Rockland at this point. So I drive to the Nanuet Mall, pull into the lot, 
Go right into the mall. I know right where I'm headed. I'm not going to any other stores, but Sam Goody. Sam Goody was a very popular record store at that time. It's all but gone today. I think it's completely gone. Anyhow, I go into the mall, beeline for Sam Goody, walk right into the store, go into the cassette section, look for M for Metallica, find it, pull it out, walking right to the register, pulling the money out of my pocket as I'm doing it, get right to the register, boom, pay the $20 or whatever it cost. Put the change in my pocket, unwrapping the cassette as I'm walking to the car. I'm not making any of the stops. I get to the car. I sit. I turn on the car. I take the cassette out of the cassette case, pop it in the tape deck. I'm not going anyplace. I'm going to sit here and listen to this tape. And it's awesome. <laughs> so anyone that likes Metallica knows Injustice for All is one of their best albums. Probably their last great album. That's debatable. That's a whole other time we'll talk about it. But I'm sitting there listening to it right away, and it opens with Blackened and so many good songs. But at the end of side one, the first side of the tape, there's this really cool, slow, hypnotic, creepy-sounding song called One. And I'm listening to it start, and unlike popular music today, Metallica spoke about darkness and evil and frustration and corruption, and, and this song... Is also a really long song. Metallica made longer songs. We think of popular songs today, they're usually typically three and a half minutes long. Well, Metallica was known for making songs that were six, seven, eight plus minutes long. And this song, based on the liner notes, is going to be a long one. But I love it. It starts off really creepy. And as I'm listening to it, the lyrics finally start almost two minutes into the song. And he goes, I can't remember anything. And I'm reading the liner notes as I'm listening to this, and it's awesome. It starts out slow, and then it becomes just a ripping tune. But as I'm listening to this, I'm like, gosh, this story sounds familiar. And I still haven't connected the dots. I mentioned the story earlier, but I am not connecting the dots. I'm just a 17-year-old kid in his Honda Accord in the parking lot, rocking out to his favorite band and their new album. And I love it. I get home. I tell Tom, yeah, dude, album's awesome, dude. You got to get it. I just bought it. It's awesome. Listen in the car. It's great. I'm going to play it all the time. Months go by. And at this point, I, I graduate from high school and still listening to my metal. I'm going to Fordham. And Metallica announces they're going to make a music video. Now, back in the day, MTV played videos all day, 24-7. It was way before all the goofy shows they have now, way before YouTube. So you got home and you watched music all day. And they played every genre from hip-hop to dance music, pop music, and metal, my favorite. Metallica never made a video. They were a very popular group, despite the fact that um, their music was loud and aggressive and their songs were long. And they had gotten very popular, and they decided that they're going to make this video for Metallica's one. And at this point, I live with my mom. And I have my own room. I was very fortunate. I had a TV in that room. So I tell her, Ma, don't bother me. New Metallica video tonight. Don't come in. And she's like, I got it. I don't, I don't care. Why are you telling me? And I was like, I'm just telling you, Ma, don't bother me. You know, when you're a kid, everything's dramatic. So anyhow, you know, I'm on the phone right before the video starts with Tom. I'm like, dude, new Metallica, you going to watch? Yeah, I'm about to watch right now, guy. It's going to be awesome, dude. Can't wait. I'll, t I'll call you after. Anyway, video starts. And initially, it's clips of the band. It's a black and white video of the band playing in some warehouse someplace. But it's intercut with clips of an old movie. And as I'm watching this, I know the song. I've been playing it to death for the six months since I bought it. But now I'm seeing it with this movie, these movie clips that tell the story of this young man that went to World War I and had a mortar blow off in his, in his 
trench during World War One in in France. And I'm like, oh my god! And it hits me midway through this song. I know this story. This is the story my dad told me. And I'm like, oh my gosh! I'm going nuts. The video is awesome, and like I said, it cuts back and forth between clips of the movie and uh, the band performing it. The song ends, and I'm just overwhelmed with just this cool feeling like I discovered something, Eureka. And I pick up the phone and the first thing I do is, is call my dad, not Tom. I call my dad. And I'm all excited. I'm like, dad, dad, remember that time we went to Atlantic City? And you told me that. And he's like, slow down, guy. And he always calls me guy or big guy. And he's like, slow down, guy. What are you talking about? I go, listen, you know how I like Metallica? He's like, yeah, yeah, that stuff. I don't know. He doesn't like that music. I go, yeah, well, anyway, they, they made this music video, dad. And, and they have this video and it's called One. And, um, well, it has to do with that story you told me when I was a, a little kid when we went to Atlantic City about the, the soldier who lost his arms and his legs and his sight and everything and, and was still alive. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's great, guy. My dad doesn't like metal. He doesn't care. It was kind of almost a throwaway story for him. But for me, it was everything. You understand? So now, after the video ends, Lars Ulrich, the, the drummer, he kind of explains where they got the idea for the song. and He brings up the, the name of the book, Johnny Got His Gun. And he brings up the name of the movie that was made many years later after the book came out. So I started doing some research. At this point, I'm in college and I am thinking about majoring in history. And what has happened here in this moment, this is a really special moment for me in my life in that it is now combining this love of music I have with this love of history and this art of storytelling that I really inherited from my dad. And these are three essential components of of my way of being, you know, add football in there. And that's pretty much the essence of me. And, um, I spent years tracking down this book and tracking down the movie to no avail. And I find out over the years that the book had been banned and that Dalton Trumbo had been blacklisted during the 1940s and fifties because he was being accused of being a communist. And when the movie came out, it came out during the Vietnam war in 1971 and it was looked upon as anti-war propaganda and no one wanted to have this movie out for very long and the movie was out of print and it had been banned anyway along with the book for many, many years. So uh, I spend the next, I don't know, at least 15 years looking for that book and looking for that movie. And it's really not until I start teaching where you know, I, I accomplish my, my hunt for these, these items. I teach this lesson and, you know, my students are really fascinated by it. And one year in, in 2003, I believe, no, 2004, um, with my then girlfriend, now wife, Jen, and we're inexplicably in New, York, in New Jersey and she wants to go to a, a garage sale and I don't like garage sales, but it's like, sure, you know, happy wife, happy life. Sure. Let's go. So we go to some garage sale and she's looking at whatever and I'm just minding my business, looking through some whatever paperback books they have there in this little box. And lo and behold, what do I find but a copy of Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. And, oh my gosh, I'm amazed. And I go to the guy that's running the garage sale and I start telling him the story. When I was 10, my dad told me, and the guy goes, yeah, 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 25 cents. So I buy this book for 25 cents. I still have it. When I read the excerpt earlier in this podcast, I read it from that book. That book in my house is like on a shelf in my man cave, like a trophy, and eventually I, I keep teaching this lesson and I would show the music video and I would read the excerpt of the book, but I never had the movie. And soon thereafter, the internet has been out for a couple of years now and kids are always more savvy when it comes to finding stuff there than, than adults. And this one kid in my class named Jonathan, he 
scours the internet and he's looking through something called Torrance, <laughs> which is funny to say now. And he finds a copy of this old movie, Johnny Got His Gun. And he burns a copy of it onto a DVD and he brings it to me a couple of days later. Like, Mr. Bascom, I, I found that movie you were talking about based on that book you were telling us about from that lesson. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. You know, so I eventually watch it. Now, times have changed in the 20 years since all of that took place where I got this first copy of it and found the book. Um, things have opened up in some ways. You know, I, eventually the movie was more available. I wound up working in a school where they bought me copies of the book and I share them with my students. And one of the great things about this story is I tell it every year. And every year I get a couple more metalheads because I play the video and they listen to the song and I give them copies of the lyrics. And, you know, a lot of the kids, they, they like the popular music of the day, but every so often you get some kid that's like, no, that's something different. I like that. And they stick with it a little bit. So years go by. We get to 2014. I teach this lesson to a group of eighth graders at that time. And they like all the kids. They like the lesson. They ask me questions. And I think it's not even just the historic part about it, about the traumatic uh, uh effects of this type of warfare that that's really the main reason i'm teaching the lesson it's not so much supposed to be about me but it really becomes my story but i think the kids like the way i'm telling the story i think they wind up liking the incorporation of the music and the, the storytelling and the literature that i read to them and like i said every year i got a couple metalhead fans so a couple of years go by and i have uh, one of the girls from that class a couple of years later her dad's a police officer her name's alexa and she's a nurse now but she comes to me in 2016 and she says, Mr. Bascom, listen, Metallica is playing uh, the Global Citizen Festival. And I go, oh, yeah, no, I heard that's going to it's going to be cool. She goes, listen, my dad's working security there and he has these all access passes and I want you to have them. And she gives me four passes to go see Metallica in Central Park, which is insane. I've seen Metallica many, many times, but never in Central Park and never with an all access come close to the stage type of pass. You know, I get there that day. And they park my car for me, and I'm, it's me, Jen, my sister, and one of her friends. And they bring us all the way to the front, and I swear, it's like I'm a celebrity. And they're walking to this tens of thousands of people, and we're walking down the middle of this, this you know, uh, corridor, the, this path to the front, towards the front of the stage. And out of the crowd of tens of thousands, I hear, Mr. Bascom! And it turns out it's some kid that I taught years earlier who fell in love with Metallica because of this lesson is now there and seeing me there walked up to the front. So it was a, it was a, it was a trip and it was really cool. It was, it, it made me feel special. And then Metallica plays, they only played a, a short set, like I think four songs and it's daytime. They're actually, the show is headlined by Rihanna of all people, but it's all good. I'm going nuts. And here's the thing. Most of the crowd that's there, there's a lot of people there, but there's not a lot of Metallica fans there. Now they are airing this on TV because the global citizen festival is a big deal. So while I'm there going nuts to the Master of Puppets, my phone starts buzzing in my pocket. I pull it out at the end of the song, and my friend's like, dude, you're on TV right now. And he sends me a screenshot of me off of the TV rocking out to Metallica. And it's pretty cool. And for me, I love this lesson because first and foremost, I want to teach engaging lessons that stick with my students. And if it means me telling a backstory of my own life, then I'm going to do it. If it means me using this Metallica song that speaks of the horrors of war, I'm going to do it. If it means me, um, you know, going sideways off the lesson a little bit to kind of really focus on the art of storytelling and not just the specific details of war, I'm going to do that because in a lot of ways, the way I teach is I, I, I'm looking for hooks. I want my 
students engaged so they want to go further so that when the bell rings they're like wait can't we just go a little bit longer so that when they leave that day maybe they go watch something on youtube today maybe they go google something maybe they go speak to their families about what they saw because you know what that's a lost art too kids are not really talking to their parents and talking to their friends there's not that accountable talk the way we would like and it's my job to kind of drive that home and what i'm creating are hooks things that make you want to tune in and stay tuned in and keep listening and this lesson's a winner every year and i love teaching it um during the covid years i was worried oh my gosh i'm going to be re- all these kids are remote how i'm going to do it i managed to do it they liked it i don't know if it had quite the same effect it's weird talking in this microphone now usually i'm walking around the room and kind of pantomiming what i was doing you know through all of these things i'm showing them a lot of um images on my slideshow of what it looked like in the war we've been covering it for a couple weeks at this point by the time i show them this the teach this lesson so it's odd to kind of just talk about it in my house but at the same time i want to memorialize these things i'm very proud of this lesson i think it has a very strong effect a positive effect on my students again as far as engaging them and wanting them to know more not just about me but about the war, about learning about the war in, in a, a dynamic manner, and about the style of music that I love. So to me, this is very much kind of a, a peanut butter and chocolate coming together moment, you know, taking storytelling and history and music and bonding them all together in this cool metal package. So hope you liked my story. Um, I'm debating whether or not to actually put in the song at the end because I know it's I don't have rights to the song and I'm afraid to put it on the back. And then I get an email from whomever saying, well, you're not supposed to use our song without licensing. And then they just chop it off. So maybe I put it on the end, maybe not. If I don't, it's Metallica's one on And Justice For All. It's worth your time. Go check it out on YouTube. It's got millions and millions of listens over the years and they are still awesome. Thank you, guys. Keep listening. Keep Spreading the word. I'm close to a thousand listens now, and that's awesome. I hope this listen finally puts me over the top. I got a lot last week, but I just need a little bit more to get over the top. Subscribe if you haven't already. And again, spread the word. You know, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're every place you find podcasts. And help me spread this word. Help me speak positivity about teaching, and especially teaching in a way that's a little bit more than the traditional sit down, open the book, answer these questions, and there's the bell. All right, people, be good.